the FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week we look at politics in Europe and the run-up to a European Union summit later this week that promises to be an unholy row. The EU seems points to appoint Jean-Claude Juncker, former Prime Minister of Luxembourg, as the next head of the European Commission. The British government's waging a lonely and almost certainly losing battle to block Mr Juncker. But how significant will this dispute prove to be in the long run? And is it simply masking deeper and more significant issues? Joining me on the line from Brussels is our bureau chief there, Peter Spiegel. And here in the studio in London is Tony Barber, our Europe editor. Peter, first, it looks like there's going to be a vote because the British are insisting on one and that Mr Juncker will be appointed against British objections. Is that how you see things? Everyone I've talked to up until and including today has said exactly that. Uh, No one is in a bargaining mood right now. Uh, Those who are on the Juncker side are not reaching out an olive branch right now to Downing Street. And to be honest with you, Downing Street doesn't want the olive branch. They want to come to Brussels. They want to very publicly vote against him. And they want every other prime minister to be forced to register that support for him in public and have all those votes counted because they are preparing to go down in flames and they want it to be done in a very public way. Why do they want to go down in flames in public? Is this some kind of masochism? Well, part of it, let's be honest, is political. We've seen some polling recently that this is actually a popular stance to take in the UK. We saw the last time Cameron tried something like this, two years ago, where he tried to veto the fiscal compact, which is the EU's new budget rules treaty. He was, again, isolated, but went home and saw his poll numbers go up. So there's part of it there. But to be honest with you, I think we have to give Cameron some credit here. I think it is a matter of principle. The vast majority of other prime ministers seem to think that the process by which Juncker was chosen was a bad process. The treaties clearly say that the prime ministers get to nominate the person they want to be head of the European Commission, but through a rather confusing political deal from the pan-European parties that no one really paid attention to at the time, they picked their own candidates to run alongside them part of the European elections with the agreement that if the largest party came into power, that largest party would get to choose the head of the European Commission. So Cameron is making an argument that other prime ministers have made privately, which is this is a power grab. This is not something that the pan-European parties, the European Parliament should have a say in. This is the primary and exclusive right of the heads of state. But politics in other countries is very different than the politics in Britain. This argument is very popular in the UK. It is not very popular, particularly in Germany, where Angela Merkel thought she'd have more room to maneuver on this issue, but has found the German public opinion almost inexplicably against her and in support of Juncker because of this process. So, Tony, I mean, it's all very entertaining and very heated at the moment. But is this, do you think, going to be a dispute that we'll look back in a year, two years' time, even longer perhaps, and say, this was a turning point, or will it just be noise? Well, there are two aspects to the answer to that question. Uh, one regarding Britain's membership of the EU. Will it be seen in a couple of years' time as the issue that pushed Britain closer to a referendum, for example, on staying in or leaving? And if that referendum resulted in a vote to leave, People probably would say that this episode involving the selection of the next commission president was a big moment. The second way to look at it is in terms of the balance of power between institutions and nations in the EU. There's no doubt that the way this process has been handled 
tips the balance of power towards the parliament more than at any point in the EU's history. And I suspect that what will happen in the five-year term of this legislature that's just been elected is that national governments based in the European Council will try and somehow claw back the initiative that has been taken from them by the parliament in the process by which Juncker is getting towards the Commission presidency. Now, will they succeed? Who knows? But I think, again, if they fail, if the Parliament sets the agenda more than it has done before, definitely this moment will be seen as a bit of a turning point. It's also striking, isn't it, that this is what Europe is arguing about, just a few weeks after European parliamentary elections, where it seemed like the big story was the rise of rabidly anti-European parties and far-right parties, particularly in France, the Front National, UKIP in the UK, and a few others elsewhere. But that concern seems to have been sidelined a bit. We've yet to see what the full impact of the Front National's victory in France will be for domestic politics in France. I and mean, I think the full repercussions of that victory haven't yet played out. Equally, it's likely that UKIP will increase its vote in the British general election next year and that that could have some influence on the way domestic politics play out in Britain. So I wouldn't say that people have forgotten about that side to it. Where I think a lot of us misread the European Parliament election result was actually in Germany itself. Although it seemed a rather kind of boring, predictable result in that the mainstream parties, Christian Democrats and Social Democrats in particular, won, this is precisely the point, that the mainstream parties that stand for a certain type of European policy won, and the election campaign in Germany was conducted very much with these Spitzenkandidaten in the public limelight being interviewed on television, giving speeches, visiting towns. To Germans, it felt like a democratic process. In Britain and other EU countries, that was nowhere in sight. Right. Now, Peter, obviously doing this broadcast from Britain, it's natural enough to focus on the British angle and the fight against Juncker. But sitting in Brussels and talking to the panoply of European countries, is the Juncker issue front and centre or are there other things on their minds? There are other issues, but to be honest with you, Juncker and Britain is all anyone's talking about here. And to your question about whether this will be forgotten in two years' time, I can tell you that in conversations with multiple diplomats, and not just from British allies, but from those who are considered less friendly <laughs> to Britain, perhaps like the French, I've never seen them this nervous. The sight of a prime minister of one of the largest member states being outvoted on an issue as big and as visible as choosing the leader of the most high-profile institution in Brussels has got a lot of people jittery. It's going to happen, but people aren't happy about it, and it's caused a lot of nervousness here. So why are they nervous? What are the implications they see in that? And if it makes them nervous, why are they doing it? Well, there's two issues here. One is for people who are wedded to the project, as it's called here, which is the future of Europe, losing a member is a big deal. People who are rather flippant about, hey, you know, let the Brits go, they've been a problem all along, are out there. But people who are really serious about making Europe work don't want Britain to leave. And frankly, it sets a bad precedent. I mean, who's next? I mean, it's almost like Grexit when we talked about Greece during the Eurozone crisis. You know, the Swedes, the Hungarians, there are other countries that are not hugely enthusiastic about Europe right now. Is this when you start pulling a thread, it all starts to unravel? Why are they doing it? Again, it comes down to the same thing that happened in the Eurozone crisis. We are in almost a single superpower Europe right now. And what decided in Berlin is decided by Europe. And what Angela Merkel says 
This is what happens. And you're starting to see this cause some concern. Back in the Eurozone crisis, it was all well and good when it was just Greece and Portugal and Ireland and other small countries that, frankly, in many Europeans' eyes, don't matter as much. But when it's Germany imposing budget rules on Italy and France and imposing a European Commission president on Britain, this is what's getting people nervous. And you ask what else is on the agenda, this issue of the budget rules. You have Matteo Renzi, who frankly came out of these European elections as probably the most successful European prime minister, did very well, unlike certainly Francois Hollande or David Cameron. He is pushing very hard to get a loosening of these rules. Francois Hollande has been, been much quieter in this, but he's also supporting that. And again, I think we're going to get some happy language at the summit saying, yes, of course, we care about growth, we care about investment. But when push comes to shove, the Germans are not going to budge on this. This was a long over during the height of the crisis. They made very clear they believe this 3% of GDP deficit target is not worth moving. We've heard the head of the Bundesbank come out very publicly this week and say this cannot be changed. So I think what is happening is Europe is having to grapple with almost a unipolar EU, and that pole being Germany. And once again, Merkel decides. Very interesting. So, Tony, I mean, I remember 20 years ago when the euro was created, there's this phrase that we want to create a European Germany, not a German Europe. Does it look like we are, in fact, getting the German Europe? I think that Peter touched on something very important, what he said a minute or so ago, and that was that there is a little bit of quite noticeable discomfort beginning to build around Europe at the dominant position that Germany has emerged with out of the Eurozone crisis. You are beginning to see ad hoc coalitions forming on particular issues, not to the point of challenging Germany and saying we are going to outvote you on things like this, but just to try and win the argument. Italy, France, Spain, well-known cases of those who want to see more flexibility on the fiscal rules, but even a country like the Netherlands that has suffered a recession in recent years is beginning to see the case for not being allied completely with Germany to the point where its own voice doesn't count for something. So... One has seen, I would say, some evolution in that sense in even the last 12 months. Of course, as regards to fiscal rules in general, those of us who've had the misfortune to have been covering this issue since, as you said, the 1990s, know that the argument between fiscal discipline and a bit of leeway for things like public investment and so has been going on right from the start. And actually built into the current rules is a certain flexibility which the Germans will point to and say well that flexibility hasn't been fully exploited yet and the back of their minds is the thought that if you were to give any extra leer at this point then more would be demanded not long down the line and that would be that. And finally Peter this summit at least begins in a highly symbolic location and a highly symbolic year meeting in Ypres where great battles of the First World War were fought a century after the outbreak of the war. The EU likes to describe itself as a peace project. Do you think that backdrop is going to lend some sombre tone to the discussions, or is it just that, just a backdrop? Well, inevitably it will. Herman van Rompuy, who's the Belgian president of the European Council, who summons everyone to Ypres to commemorate this, has been very careful to try to separate the fight over Juncker from this commemoration in Ypres. He has insisted that day one, which is going to be in Ypres, will be talking about broad goals for the future of Europe. Again, very mom and apple pie kind of principles. And that the nomination process will happen on Friday. But look, they will obviously overshadow each other. And the Brits and the Germans, frankly, are both a bit worried about that. They don't want this to be a diplomatic mess. 
But it is, it's a rather timely reminder that uh, this is a project that was created out of the ashes of war, and you still have national interests that frequently come into very intense conflict. And it is something that these are decided by votes of qualified majority and these obscure EU Byzantine rules, rather than on the battlefield. I think everyone is going to point at that, even when David Cameron loses rather badly here in Brussels. So there is something to be said for EU summits after all. Well, that's good to hear. Thank you very much, Peter Spiegel in Brussels. Thanks also to Tony Barber here in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.